Hello and welcome to Leftist Reading, a podcast where I'm a leftist and I read things. Today, we are finishing The Conquest of Bread. This is our 16th part of The Conquest of Bread, and that means that half of our 32 episodes have been on this book. I think it's a better pace than when I crammed Lenin's book into much fewer parts. And I will probably stick with this for future books. I'm glad we finished the book. I definitely have thoughts which you'll be hearing in a future episode. So let's get started on the final reading of The Conquest of Bread. Chapter 17 Agriculture Section 4 The market gardeners, we say, are forced to become machines and to renounce all joys of life in order to obtain their marvellous crops. But these hard grinders have rendered a great service to humanity in teaching us that the soil can be made. They make it with old hotbeds of manure, which have already served to give the necessary warmth to young plants and to early fruit, and they make it in such great quantity that they are compelled to sell it in part, otherwise it would raise the level of their gardens by one inch every year. They do it so well, so Barrel teaches us in his Dictionary of Agriculture in an article on market gardeners, that in recent contracts, the market gardener stipulates that he will carry away his soil with him when he leaves the bit of ground he is cultivating. Loam carried away on carts with furniture and glass frames, that is the answer of practical cultivators to the learned treatises of a Ricardo, who represented rent as a means of equalizing the natural advantages of the soil. The soil is worth what the man is worth. That is the gardener's motto. And yet, the market gardeners of Paris and Rouen labor three times as hard to obtain the same results as their fellow workers in Guernsey or in England. Applying industry to agriculture, these last make their climate in addition to their soil, by means of the greenhouse. Fifty years ago, the greenhouse was the luxury of the rich. It was kept to grow exotic plants for pleasure. But nowadays, its use begins to be generalized. A tremendous industry has grown up lately in Guernsey and Jersey, where hundreds of acres are already covered with glass, to say nothing of the countless small greenhouses kept in every little farm garden. Acres and acres of greenhouses have lately been built also at Worthing, 103 acres in 1912, in the suburbs of London, and in several other parts of England and Scotland. They are built of all qualities beginning with those which have granite walls, then to those which represent mere shelters made in planks and glass frames, which cost, even now, with all the tribute paid to capitalists and middlemen, less than three shillings sixpence per square yard under glass. Most of them are heated for at least three or four months every year, but even the cool greenhouses, which are not heated at all, give excellent results. Of course, not for growing grapes and tropical plants, but for potatoes, carrots, peas, tomatoes, and so on. In this way, man emancipates himself from climate, and at the same time, he avoids also the heavy work with the hotbeds, and he saves both in buying much less manure and in work. Three men to the acre, each of them working less than 60 hours a week, produce on very small spaces what formerly required acres and acres of land. The result of all these recent conquests of culture is 
that if one half only of the adults of a city gave each about 50 half days for the culture of the finest fruit and vegetables out of season, they would have all the year round an unlimited supply of that sort of fruit and vegetables for the whole population. But there is a still more important fact to notice. The greenhouse has nowadays a tendency to become a mere kitchen garden under glass. And when it is used to such a purpose, the simplest plank and glass unheated shelters already give fabulous crops. Such as, for instance, 500 bushels of potatoes per acre as a first crop, ready by the end of April, after which a second and a third crop are obtained in the extremely high temperature which prevails in the summer under glass. I gave in my fields, factories and workshops most striking facts in this direction. Sufficient to say here that at Jersey, 34 men with one trained gardener only cultivate 13 acres under glass, from which they obtain 143 tons of fruit and early vegetables, using for this extraordinary culture less than 1,000 tons of coal. And this is done now in Guernsey and Jersey on a very large scale, quite a number of steamers constantly plying between Guernsey and London, only to export the crops of the greenhouses. Nowadays, in order to obtain that same crop of 500 bushels of potatoes, we must plough every year a surface of four acres, plant it, cultivate it, weed it, and so on. Whereas with the glass, even if we shall have to give, perhaps to start with, half a day's work per square yard in order to build the greenhouse, we shall save afterwards at least one half and probably three quarters of the yearly labour required formerly. These are facts, results which every one can verify himself, and these facts are already a hint as to what man could obtain from the earth if he treated it with intelligence. Section 5. In all the above we have reasoned upon what already withstood the test of experience. Intensive culture of the fields, irrigated meadows, the hothouse, and finally the kitchen garden under glass are realities. Moreover, the tendency is to extend and to generalize these methods of culture, because they allow of obtaining more produce with less work and with more certainty. In fact, after having studied the most simple glass shelters of Guernsey, we affirm that, taking all in all, far less work is expended for obtaining potatoes under glass in April than in growing them in the open air, which requires digging a space four times as large, watering it, weeding it, etc. Work is likewise economized in employing a perfected tool or machine, even when an initial expense had to be incurred to buy the tool. Complete figures concerning the culture of common vegetables under glass are still wanting. This culture is of recent origin, and is only carried out on small areas. But we have already figures concerning the 50 years old culture of early season grapes, and these figures are conclusive. In the north of England, on the Scotch frontier, where coal only costs three shilling a ton at the pit's mouth, they have long since taken to growing hothouse grapes. 30 years ago, these grapes, ripe in January, were sold by the grower at 20 shilling per pound and resold at 40 shillings per pound for Napoleon III's table. Today, 
the same grower sells them at only two shillings sixpence per pound. He tells us so himself in a horticultural journal. The fall in the prices is caused by the tons and tons of grapes arriving in January to London and Paris. Thanks to the cheapness of coal and an intelligent culture, grapes for the north travel now southwards, in a contrary direction to ordinary fruit. They cost so little that in May, English and Jersey grapes are sold at one shilling eightpence per pound by the gardeners. And yet this price, like that of 40 shillings 30 years ago, is only kept up by slack production. In March, Belgium grapes are sold at from 6 to 8 shillings, while in October grapes cultivated in immense quantities, under glass and with a little artificial heating in the environs of London, are sold at the same price as grapes bought by the pound in the vineyards of Switzerland and the Rhine, that is to say, for a few half pence. Yet they still cost two-thirds too much, by reason of the excessive rent of the soil and the cost of installation and heating, on which the gardener pays a formidable tribute to the manufacturer and the middleman. This being understood, we may say that it costs next to nothing to have delicious grapes under the latitude of and in our misty London in autumn. In one of the suburbs, for instance, a wretched glass and plaster shelter, nine feet ten inches long by six and one half feet wide, resting against our cottage, gave us about 50 pounds of grapes of an exquisite flavour in October, for nine consecutive years. The crop came from a Hamburg vine stalk, six years old, and the shelter was so bad that the rain came through. At night, the temperature was always that of outside. It was evidently not heated, for it would have been as useless as heating the street. And the care which was given was pruning the vine half an hour every year, and bringing a wheelbarrow of manure, which was thrown over the stalk of the vine, planted in red clay outside the shelter. On the other hand, if we estimate the amount of care given to the vine on the borders of the Rhine in Lake Liman, the terraces constructed stone upon stone on the slopes of the hills, the transport of manure and also of earth to a height of two or three hundred feet, we come to the conclusion that on the whole, the expenditure of work necessary to cultivate vines is more considerable in Switzerland or on the banks of the Rhine than it is under glass in London suburbs. This may seem paradoxical, because it is generally believed that vines grow of themselves in the south of Europe, and that the vine grower's work costs nothing. But gardeners and horticulturists, far from contradicting us, confirm our assertions. Quote, the most advantageous culture in England is vine culture, wrote a practical gardener, editor of the English Journal of Horticulture in the 19th century. Prices speak eloquently for themselves, as we know. Translating these facts into communist language, we may assert that the man or woman who takes 20 hours a year from his leisure time to give some little care, very pleasant in the main, to two or three vine stalks sheltered by simple glass under any European climate, will gather as many grapes as their family and friends can eat, and that applies not only to vines, but to all fruit trees. The commune that will put the processes of intensive culture into practice on a large scale will have all possible vegetables, indigenous or exotic, and all desirable fruits, without employing more than about 10 hours a year per inhabitant. In fact, Nothing would be easier than to verify the above statements by direct experiment, 
Suppose 100 acres of a light loam, such as we have at Worthing, are transformed into a number of market gardens, each one with its glass houses for the rearing of the seedlings and young plants. Suppose also that 50 more acres are covered with glass houses, and the organization of the whole is left to practical experienced French maraîchers and Guernsey or Worthing greenhouse gardeners. In basing the maintenance of these 150 acres on the Jersey average, requiring the work of three men per acre under glass, which makes less than 8,600 hours of work a year, it would need about 1,300,000 hours for the 150 acres. 50 competent gardeners could give five hours a day to this work, and the rest would simply be done by people who, without being gardeners by profession, would soon learn how to use a spade and to handle the plants. But this work would yield, at least, we have seen it in a preceding chapter, all necessaries and articles of luxury in the way of fruit and vegetables for at least 40,000 or 50,000 people. Let us admit that among this number, there are 13,500 adults willing to work at the kitchen garden. Then, each one would have to give 100 hours a year, distributed over the whole year. These hours of work would become hours of recreation, spent among friends and children in beautiful gardens, more beautiful probably than those of the legendary Semiramis. This is the balance sheet of the labour to be spent in order to be able to eat to satiety fruit, which you are deprived of today, and to have vegetables in abundance, now so scrupulously rationed out by the housewife when she has to reckon each halfpenny which must go to enrich capitalists and landowners. Footnote 1. If only humanity had the consciousness of what it can, and if that consciousness only gave it the power to will. If it only knew, what cowardice of the spirit is the rock on which all revolutions have stranded until now? Section 6. We can easily perceive the new horizons opening before the social revolution. Each time we speak of revolution, the face of the worker who has seen children wanting food darkens, and he asks, quote, What of bread? Will there be sufficient if everyone eats according to his appetite? What if the peasants, ignorant tools of reaction, starve our towns, as the black bands did in France in 1793? What shall we do? End quote. Let them do their worst. The large cities will have to do without them. At what, then, should the hundreds of thousands of workers, who are asphyxiated today in small workshops and factories, be employed on the day they regain their liberty? Will they continue to shut themselves up in factories after the revolution? Will they continue to make luxurious toys for export? when they see their stock or corn getting exhausted, meat becoming scarce, and vegetables disappearing without being replaced. Evidently not. They will leave the town and go into the fields, aided by a machinery which will enable the weakest of us to put a shoulder to the wheel. They will carry revolution into previously enslaved culture, as they will have carried it into institutions and ideas. Hundreds of acres will be covered with glass, and men and women with delicate fingers will foster the growth of young plants. Hundreds of other acres will be ploughed by steam, improved by manures, 
were enriched by artificial soil obtained by the pulverization of rocks. Happy crowds of occasional laborers will cover these acres with crops, guided in the work and experiments, partly by those who know agriculture, but especially by the great and practical spirit of a people roused from long slumber and illumined by the bright beacon, the happiness of all. And in two or three months, the early crops will receive the most pressing wants, and provide food for a people who, after so many centuries of expectation, will at least be able to appease their hunger and eat according to their appetite. In the meanwhile, popular genius, the genius of a nation which revolts and knows its wants, will work at experimenting with new processes of culture that we already catch a glimpse of and that only need the baptism of experience to become universal. Light will be experimented with, that unknown agent of culture which makes barley ripen in 45 days under the latitude of Yakutsk. Light, concentrated or artificial, will rival heat in hastening the growth of plants. A musho of the future will invent a machine to guide the rays of the sun and make them work, so that we shall no longer seek sun heat stored in coal in the depths of the earth. They will experiment the watering of the soil with cultures of microorganisms, a rational idea conceived but yesterday, which will permit us to give to the soil those little living beings, necessary to feed the rootlets, to decompose and assimilate the component parts of the soil. They will experiment. But let us stop here, or we shall enter into the realm of fancy. Let us remain in the reality of acquired facts. With the processes of culture in use, applied on a large scale, and already victorious in the struggle against industrial competition, we can give ourselves ease and luxury in return for agreeable work. The near future will show us what is practical in the processes that recent scientific discoveries give us a glimpse of. Let us limit ourselves at present to opening up the new path that consists in the study of the needs of man and the means of satisfying them. The only thing that may be wanting to the revolution is the boldness of the initiative. With our minds already narrowed in our youth and enslaved by the past in our mature age, we hardly dare to think. If a new idea is mentioned, before venturing on an opinion of our own, we consult musty books a hundred years old to know what ancient masters thought on the subject. It is not food that will fail if boldness of thought and initiative are not wanting to the revolution. Of all the great days of the French Revolution, the most beautiful, the greatest, was the one in which delegates, who had come from all parts of France to Paris, worked all with the spade to plane the ground of the Champ de Mar, preparing it for the fête of the Federation. That day France was united, animated by the new spirit. She had a vision of the future in the working in common of the soil. And it will again be by the working in common of the soil that the enfranchised societies will find their unity and will obliterate the hatred and oppression which has hitherto divided them. Henceforth, able to conceive solidarity, that immense power which increases man's energy and creative forces a hundredfold, the new society will march to the conquest of the future with all the vigor of youth. Ceasing to produce for unknown buyers, and looking in its midst for needs and tastes to be satisfied, society will liberally assure the life and ease of each of its members as well as that moral satisfaction, which work give when freely chosen and freely accomplished, 
and the joy of living without encroaching on the life of others. Inspired by a new daring, born of the feeling of solidarity, all will march together to the conquest of the high joys of knowledge and artistic creation. A society thus inspired will fear neither dissensions within nor enemies without. To the coalitions of the past, it will oppose a new harmony, the initiative of each and all, the daring which springs from the awakening of a people's genius. Before such an irresistible force, conspiring kings will be powerless. Nothing will remain for them but to bow before it and to harness themselves to the chariot of humanity, rolling towards new horizons opened up by the social revolution. And that concludes this week's reading and this book. I quite enjoyed this as a different take than Marx and Lenin, who were much more focused on communism than the anarchical idea of decentralizing society. I have a lot of capital T thoughts, and I think there's actually too much to even fit in the back half of this episode without making it an excessively long episode. I will be recording them, editing them, then checking, and probably just putting them out next week as a supplemental episode. But the basic summary, I did not know what anarchism actually meant going into this book, and now I do. At the most fundamental level, I now actually see the way in which it is effectively a classist system to have people in, quote, professional work being on a different tier to people in non-professional work. But there's a lot more than that to dig into. I will leave it there for this week. If you want to get in touch with the show, especially if you have any recommendations on readings or articles, someone sent in an email recommending Ursula K. Le Guin's The Dispossessed as a fictional novel that deals with anarchy. I have started reading it since, and it's very good, and I would recommend it to you too if you want to check out the kind of exploration of how a society like that might function. If you do want to recommend anything, including fiction, you can email leftistreading at gmail.com or get the show on Twitter at leftistreading. This show is hosted on the Abnormal Mapping Network. You can go to abnormalmapping.com to find lots of other podcasts on various topics. The intro and outro music is Decisions by Eric Medias. You can find it and more of his work on soundimage.org. And that's all for this week. Thank you and congratulations for finishing another book with me. Don't forget to keep reading.